invite you to turn with me uh, to the Gospel of John, John chapter 19, and look at verses 1 through 16 uh, in light of um, Good Friday this week and Easter coming up. Uh, We're going to take a two-week break from our series in Deuteronomy to reflect upon the suffering and the resurrection of Christ. So today we're looking at John chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. Let's hear the gospel, uh, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them (coughs) to be crucified. Well, we live, don't we, in an increasingly visual culture. We're daily saturated with images. Screens are everywhere. I wonder how many screens are in this room right now if you count the ones we are, most of us are carrying around in our pockets right now. Due in large part to the explosion of visual technologies, images have become the new universal language, the, the lingua franca. It's not Greek like it was during the time of Alexander, it's not Latin, it's not English, 
The new universal language is the image, a picture that can go viral and spread across the world in a matter of moments. Even text messages are increasingly visual, aren't they? We send emoticons and short video clips to one another. And this increasing use of images uh, probably exercises a greater influence on us than, than we care to admit. I think one of the sad consequences of living in an image-based culture is that it promotes this idea that image really is everything. Social media constantly pressures us to keep up our public image, to put on our best face, to look impressive to others, or to appear as uh, those individuals who are living the kind of life that other people aspire to live. Another consequence is we, we become increasingly superficial and shallow in our assessment of things because we are accustomed to just bouncing from one image to the next. In light of that, I want to say that the good news, the good news for us from the Gospel of John today is that the gospel invites us into a deeper way of seeing things. The gospel of John in this story invites us into a deeper way of seeing things that go far beyond the superficial veneer of our culture. The gospel of John beckons us to see someone. Behold the man. That is, come and see the crucified king. And learn to see with new eyes. And so I'd like us to consider this passage in three parts this morning. I feel like we're just scratching the surface because this is such a rich text. But I, I hope that these three things will get us close to the heart of what John wants us to see. And so first, behold the man. Secondly, behold the lamb. And thirdly, Behold the king. One of the most important features in John's gospel is his claim to be an eyewitness of the things that he wrote about. And so in, his, in the, the prologue, right out of the gate, in John chapter 1, uh, verse 14, he declares, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. John says, we've seen something. We've, we've seen his glory. That is a central claim of his gospel. This claim to eyewitness testimony sets the agenda for the whole book. And this is what John wants us to see as well. Not with our physical eyes, but by means of his apostolic, authoritative eyewitness testimony. That's how he wants us to see. Not with our physical eyes but by means of his authoritative apostolic eyewitness testimony. In, in other words, God's word is another way of seeing. It creates a different visual culture than the way the world sees things. There are tons of biblical examples of this, but let me just give you one from the Old Testament. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 21 reads, And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh 
For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Did you catch that? The Lord revealed himself. The Lord appeared to Samuel at Shiloh. How? By the word of the Lord. Right? So the Lord appeared. The Lord revealed himself by his word. And that's how he appears to us today. Through the opening of the word of God, God reveals himself to us by the word of the Lord, including the apostolic, authoritative eyewitness testimony of the gospel of John. And this is why John includes so many places where his readers, I wonder if you've ever noticed this in studying the gospel of John, you'll find it again and again. So many places where John invites his readers to look, to see, to behold. It's not long after John said, we have seen his glory, that we then hear John the Baptist saying in John chapter 1 verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. These invitations to look and see are everywhere in John's gospel. In fact, when Jesus first calls his disciples, the very first thing he says is, come and see. This is what we are called to do as disciples, to fix our eyes on Jesus and follow him. It's the only way we can follow him. And this invitation continues throughout the whole Gospel of John, right up to the passage where John records Pilate's words. And his words are emphatic, commanding us to behold, to see, to look. You can notice, for example, verse 4, Pilate says, See, I am bringing him out to you. Verse 5, Behold the man. Verse 15, Behold your king. And it's so important for us to realize <coughs> that there's much more here than meets the eye. Earlier in, in uh, John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus gave this warning. He said, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And that warning is really central to how we ought to read the passage that is before us today. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Judgment. After all, how does Jesus appear in this passage? He is dressed up as a clown king and judged on the basis of that appearance. That's what's happening in this passage. He's being judged by false appearances. And this is what the world <coughs> continues to do with Jesus. And it's what the world wants to do with anyone who follows Jesus. The world will dress you up as a clown king and judge you by appearances. But here's the thing we need to recognize and appreciate. John is ironically employing Pilate's words to help us see more deeply, to help us see beyond the appearances of things. John has written this narrative to help us see much more deeply and to judge with right judgment. Again, after all, how did Jesus appear? How did things appear when Pilate judged Jesus? Let's, let's get more precise. What did Jesus look like when Pilate said the words, Behold the man? Well, we know what he looked like if you look at verse 1. 
Verse 1 tells us, Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, Roman flogging was a horrific, grotesque affair. It was a, a savage form of physical punishment. Jesus would have been stripped completely naked and tied to a post. And then he would have been, he would have been whipped with a, a whip made up of leather braids that had been interwoven with bits of bone and, and metal. So needless to say, there would have been a lot of blood. It's well documented that many people didn't even survive Roman flogging. And some who did, bones and internal organs were, were left exposed. Now, John doesn't, John doesn't dwell on that. In fact, none of the Gospels dwell on those grotesque details as a whole. But <coughs> we need to appreciate the fact that the original readers would have been well aware of what a Roman flogging looked like. And it was this seemingly pathetic individual that Pilate was calling attention to when he spoke the words, Behold the man. John wants us to see, like so many other figures throughout his gospel, that Pilate speaks better than he knows. John wants us to see that in this moment of utter irony, that this seemingly pathetic figure just standing before this crowd, bloody and beaten, is in fact the perfect embodiment of true humanity. For the very first time in the history of the world, a true human being in the flesh. That's what we behold here. Unlike the first man who disobeyed God and blamed his bride, here is a man who from his birth has obeyed his heavenly father and stands bloody and beaten to redeem his bride. And so if you want to know, if you want to know what a full human being looks like, this is it. If you want to know what a man looks like, listen to Pilate, behold the man. Our world, it is so confused today about the basic idea of what it means to be a human being, isn't it? Right? We, don't, we don't know what human beings are and we don't know what human beings are for anymore. There are all kinds of competing ideas about what humans are and, and what they're for, all kinds of anthropologies fighting for our allegiance. And so, for example, rationalism, which, you know, reduces human nature to our cognitive faculties, defines human nature as your, your rationality, autonomous human reasoning. Materialism reduces human nature to, you know, physical, chemical interactions within our bodies, defining human nature as matter in motion. Racism reduces human nature to, you know, my own race, my own people, my own tribe, and defines human uh, nature on the basis of ethnicity. Darwinism reduces human nature to the survival of the fittest and, and defines human beings as lucky animals. 
Consumerism reduces humans to goods and services and says, you are what you own. You are what you eat. You are what you desire. And I think perhaps one of the most widespread anthropologies that people embrace today is what many today are calling expressive individualism, which reduces human nature to my interpersonal feelings and my self-expression, right? It says that human nature is infinitely adaptable and with the help of scientific advancements, we can conform our bodies to our own individual preferences and desires. So I can, for example, change my gender. I can transition into anything I want to be because this cultural anthropology says just follow your heart, follow your desires to realize your true self. In light of all of that, though, I want to say the Bible, the Bible defines humanity in the light of Jesus Christ. It ultimately answers this universal question, what is man, not by calling us to fix our eyes upon a theory or upon some, you know, um, some anthropology. It calls us to fix our eyes on a particular person, Don't you love that? The Bible doesn't give us an abstract anthropological theory about what it means to be human. It gives us Jesus. You want to know what it means to be human? Fix your eyes on Christ, the image of God. Behold the man. In verse 2, John notes that the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And these thorns ought to remind us of the curse in the beginning with the first man in Genesis chapter 3, verse 18. God told the first man, because of his sin, because of his rebellion, that the ground, the ground itself, that thorns and thistles would come from it because of him. You see what's going on? Here in John's gospel, we see how the last Adam took the curse of the first Adam Upon his own brow, upon his own head, he took that curse from the ground and it was placed symbolically here upon his head. That's what John wants us to see. He wants us, he wants us to, to see what's going on with Jesus in the light of the bigger story. He wants our hearts to burn within us as we behold the man. He wants us to see <coughs> what's really happening because... <clears throat> Beyond the superficial scene of this pathetic, bloodied man stands the man of God's own choosing. He wants you to really behold the man. Here he is. Here's the man. He's he's the undoing of the curse. And it's a reminder that in this world, appearances can be deceiving. And Boy, that that principle is especially true when kings are involved, isn't it? At least in the world of scripture. That appearances can be deceiving, especially where kings are concerned. There's this thing about royal narratives in the Bible, you know, the optics of true power. One of the most striking features of royal narratives in scripture is the way that those narratives highlight the truth that appearances can be deceiving. 
So just think with me for a moment about the story of Saul and David for just one example. You know, the very first thing that we are ever told about Saul, who God would eventually reject and replace, is that Saul was tall and handsome. He looked good. He looked like royal material. 1 Samuel 9-2 says, There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upwards, he was taller than any people. I find it fascinating that when the Lord initially introduces Saul to Samuel for the first time in 1 Samuel 9.17, do you know what it says in the old King James Version? Behold the man. Behold the man. This is the king the Lord reluctantly agreed to give his people when they foolishly demanded a king like the surrounding nations. Okay, so in this royal narrative, Saul's most outstanding characteristic is his outward appearance. He looked good. Saul was, Saul was a stud. Saul had the face of a movie star, and, and he had a formidable physique. But what do we discover when Israel faced Goliath at the Valley of Elah? What we discover is that his good looks and his formidable physique were an optical illusion. His good looks were a big letdown. It was nothing but an illusion in spite of the fact that Saul towered over everyone. He cowered along with everybody else before Goliath of Gath. Simply put, his looks were deceiving. And do you see how in John 19, it's all in reverse? It's all in reverse. Saul looked good. He looked great and powerful and impressive. Jesus looked utterly pathetic and weak, like a guy who had just gotten beaten up. It is a stunning reversal, but ask yourself the question, who is the real man? The same point appears powerfully in 1 Samuel 16, which recounts the story of David's anointing. I wonder if you remember what happened there. This is when God tells Samuel, stop stop grieving over the fact that I've rejected Saul and and go and anoint the one who will serve as his royal replacement. Uh, 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 and 7 say, When he came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Wow, Eliab, you, you look like the real deal. You look like royal pedigree. He was visually impressive. And so Samuel thought on the basis of appearance, he must be the man. Then the text goes on to say, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So this is precisely how John wants us to see in our passage. And this principle, it has countless applications to virtually every aspect of our lives. Just think with me about a couple for a moment. You know, 
we, we live in a consumer society where everything is packaged as a product for our consumption. And sadly, church has not survived that. So ask yourself, in a consumer society, what does a healthy, thriving, I don't even like using this language, successful church look like? Well, in the eyes of a consumer society, it's usually a church with lots and lots of people, typically led by a a celebrity pastor who's good at entertaining people and keeping people uh, listening. Uh, it's It's a church where worship feels more like a concert than it does a worship service rendered to God. It's a place that you can go into and get out of easily without anything really ever being expected or asked of you. Because after all, you're the consumer and you're there just to consume and to be entertained. And it's a church that will likely have bazillions of ministries because the church has to meet all of the different consumers' demands. Now, in contrast to that, what's being lost? What's being lost is the fundamental commitments of the Bible to devotion to biblical worship, devotion to Christian fellowship that involves giving of myself for the sake of others where I am patiently learning to love people who are radically different than me in all kinds of ways and not just merely being drawn towards people that I have a natural affinity to. Things like devotion to prayer. Right? How do all of these things look in a consumer society? Well, they look weak, they look pathetic, they look like a giant waste of time. Do not judge by appearances. This new way of seeing also serves as a corrective to the way our culture tries to deceive us about our wives and daughters and how it trains them into thinking that their worth is defined by their physical appearance. It's not. It's not. Your worth, dear sisters, is not defined by your physical appearance, and yet our world screams that message at you day by day. But you see how it's impossible to believe that lie when your eyes are fixed firmly on Jesus, whose bodily appearance, in the words of Isaiah, was beyond human semblance. And yet, he, in reality, he is distinguished among 10,000, fairest of them all. You see, our vision, our way of seeing things will be transformed when we behold the beauty of the King crucified. Jesus is the unblemished embodiment of true humanity who was beaten and bloodied that he might present the church to himself without spot or wrinkle. And so we must look beyond the superficial appearances of the world to behold what in God's sight is very precious. That takes us to the next thing uh, that John wants us to see. Behold the Lamb. John wants us to not only see that Jesus is the true man, he wants us to see that Jesus is the, uh, the true man. He wants us to see that Jesus is the true Lamb. Earlier in his gospel, we've already heard 
the words of John the Baptist, Behold the Lamb of God. <clears throat> and in our passage, John depicts Jesus as the true Passover Lamb. One of the ways he does this is by emphasizing Jesus' innocence. Once again, Pilate speaks better than he knows. In verse 4, Pilate says, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. he's, He's innocent. This is the second time in John's gospel that Pilate has declared Jesus' innocence. And he repeats this verdict a third time in verse 6 with the very same words. And this threefold affirmation of Jesus' innocence alludes to the requirements for the Passover lamb, which we find in Exodus chapter 12, verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish. And friends, Jesus was. He was without blemish. He was without spot. That is what we find, a lamb without blemish or spot, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.19. In addition to the innocence of Jesus, John also wants you to, to see his silence. Did you notice that? When Pilate questions Jesus in verse 9, John tells us Jesus gave him no answer. And throughout church history, Christians have uh, heard in this silence the powerful voice of the prophet Isaiah who said he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And perhaps the most remarkable detail of this story that helps us to see Jesus as the lamb is found in the timing of Jesus' trial and the way that John describes it. It took place during the week of Passover. I believe Passover had already taken place on Thursday. This is Friday. In verse 14, John says, it was the day of the preparation of the Passover, referring to the week of Passover. And the day of preparation, Mark chapter 14, verse, uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 42 makes clear, is the day of preparation prior to the Sabbath. So it's Friday, okay? Friday. But John uses this language of the day of preparation of the Passover to make sure we do not miss the connection. As he'll go on even to make uh, more clear when Jesus is on the cross and his bones are not broken because Jesus is the Passover lamb. So think about it. During that same week when people are flocking to the city of Jerusalem and have shared in this feast that Jesus, the true Passover lamb, was being prepared to offer the sacrifice that takes away the sin of the world. See what John is communicating? See what John is is saying to us? He wants us to understand. So if if you don't trust in this Passover lamb, you don't get passed over. Judgment comes. And so a question we need to ask ourselves is, am I I trusting in the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ? Do I have participation in his body and blood? Am I covered by the blood of Jesus? the lamb who takes away the sin of the world? Does his blood mark my doorpost? And if it does, John wants us to see and appreciate how safe you already are. That there is no condemnation 
for you because the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Sin has been dealt with. You are redeemed. There is no condemnation left. None whatsoever. Your sin is covered and remembered no more. It's no wonder the psalmist says, blessed is the one who takes refuge in the Lord. And that brings us to the third thing we need to see very quickly. Behold the king. Now there's something we need to remember. That when it comes to the Passover festival, it was always a celebration of Israel's liberation from political tyranny. That's something I think we sometimes overlook and, and or don't reflect upon. But the Passover was always a festive celebration of God's people being delivered from a foreign power so that they could worship the Lord alone. Like, let my people go that they may serve me. All right, so the Passover had these uh, powerfully political overtones and implications. So think about it. When the Jews celebrated Passover... They remembered that God had brought them out of bondage in Egypt, set them free to serve the Lord alone. And this central aspect of the Passover has to be kept in mind for us to appreciate what John wants us to see here. Look at verses 14 and 15. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Here's another breathtaking irony in this story. While the Passover was a celebration of liberation from foreign tyranny, and during the week when the people of God remembered how God had set them free to serve him alone what do we hear the chief priests saying we serve no king but caesar you see the tragic irony there during a week of celebrating how god redeems his people and sets them free sets them at liberty to serve him the religious leaders are effectively saying nope we serve none but caesar we are committed to the status quo We want things to remain the way they are. We want to maintain our power and our influence. And we will not have the kind of change that Jesus brings. It is an utterly disgraceful statement uttered by the chief priests. God had not only sent his son to die as the true Passover lamb, but as the true and better king, he came to liberate his people and set them free to serve God alone but you see the chief priests are those who wouldn't have any of it they wanted things to stay the way they were they would not give up their way of life in order to bow the knee and recognize Christ as king and it's so it's so easy it's so easy to stick up our noses at the chief priests but here's the sticking point dear friends we do exactly the same thing we do exactly the same thing when the claims of Christ confront us and we say, I won't have it. I serve no king but my way of life. 
I serve no king, but that particular habit or that particular sin, that pet sin in my life that I will not give up in order to recognize Christ as king. You see, we can scoff at the chief priests all we want, but the reality is that as long as we reject the claims of the kingship of Jesus Christ, we stand in the shoes of the chief priests. We are the ones who deny Christ as king so we can say, I would rather have the status quo. I would rather have a little bit of slavery than the freedom that Jesus offers in the gospel. See, far too often, instead of acknowledging Christ as king, we're content with compromise. Far too often, instead of enjoying Uh, rejoicing in the promise of freedom that Jesus offers in the gospel, we spend our days under the petty tyranny of self-indulgence. And we think it's freedom, when in fact it's a life of bondage. But you see, the good news is not only that we are covered by the blood of the Lamb, but God has raised up a true and better King And in the sun, there is real freedom. Real freedom from the status quo. Real freedom from sin and those habitual sins that weigh us down. If the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. John wants us to see beyond all of the false appearances. You see, friends, if you think about it, the fall of humanity took place in the context of false appearances, didn't it? Genesis 3 verse 6 says that when the woman woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was also with her and he ate. The fall occurred in the context of false appearances. But the salvation of humanity occurs in the context of the restoration of true sight. The restoration of our sight to see things as they really are. It comes through really seeing. And that's why the gospel tells us, behold the man. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the King. Behold your God. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would restore to us uh, true sight that we would see beyond the appearance of things and, and see Jesus for who he truly is as a true man, as the true Passover lamb who alone can redeem us from our sins and as the king that you have established to rule over your kingdom. And we pray that seeing Jesus for he, who he truly is that we would gladly bend the knee and say, we serve none but Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.